Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. In our last episode, Pastor Jake Ballard explained what worldviews are. Today, he covers the two major worldviews, modernism and postmodernism. Although many today still approach life from a modernist mindset, postmodernism is here in increasing force. What are we as Bible-believing Christians to do about this? The first step is to become aware of what's going on and how it both fits with and challenges the biblical worldview, and that's what we're going to do here today. Here now is episode 371, Postmodernism Part 2, with Jacob Ballard. Well, welcome back, Jake. I'm so glad to have you here with me today to talk about more on the topic of worldview. Glad to be back. So last time we laid out what a worldview is and how that's sort of the deepest and maybe murkiest aspect of culture that many of us are just not even thinking about consciously, although it's it's influencing us. And we talked about values and how our worldview really gives shape to different values that motivate practices that we inherit and live out in our lives. And then when we see somebody else having a different practice or a different value, we, we tend to be a little surface level in our assessment rather than realizing there's a worldview issue potentially underneath it. And what we're looking at today is discussing really two of the big huge, commonly accepted worldviews, modernism and postmodernism, and uh, looking at these a little bit, hopefully, in light of the biblical worldview. Let's start with modernism. Jake, uh, can you define for us what modernism is, considering the fact that probably most people think modern just sounds like contemporary, up-to-date, something like that, and that's not at all (laughs) what the worldview of modernism means. So uh, where do you want to get started there? I know this sounds crazy, but I want to go back a couple thousand years, and doing that will help us get to where we are right now, because it's it's important to see that the world has been shaped by a number of different worldviews, and this is extremely simplified and also Western-centric, so the fact that what we're going to be talking about today is very much the United States and parts of Europe uh, and the the cultures that have affected them, so understand that if we're talk if you were talking about somewhere else Africa Asia or and you wanted to go deeper there's a lot more to go through I just need to give that as someone who wants to make sure I'm very well understood I don't want people to think that this is the grandest view there's there's much more nitty-gritty details but I think that this can help us kind of set the stage for the different worldviews that have existed at least in more modern human history so the earliest worldview we want to talk about is from about 2500 BC to 500 AD. And that is the ancient worldview. And it's important to talk about this worldview because the Bible is written in this culture. Christ came in that culture and it is foreign to us as people who are modern and postmodern. So we need to understand it. So we talked about last week that we need to understand other people when we bring them our faith. We need to understand where they're coming from and what their worldview is. We need to understand the Bible's worldview as it shapes us. So that's an important thing to get, that there's an ancient worldview. This worldview is based around 
the idea that there are supernatural there, there's a supernatural realm and that god speaks and that other cultures said that there were other gods and so there is a worldview in the past that christ came into and that the bible was written in and then around 500 a.d rome falls rome has already fallen by 500 the unification of europe was no longer rome that allowed for multiple faiths as long as you paid your taxes now rule became in the hands of the faithful the monasteries and especially the pope had power through the medieval time so there become we go from the ancient world to the medieval world so from around 500 to 1500 power is now in the hands of the pope and kings were subservient to him and this was when belief was at its highest point in human history at this time everyone's born into the church now is everybody a believer in the strictest sense we could debate that but most people are born knowing that there is god and what you must do to have him in your life and and protect you and care for you uh and then in the 1500s and thereabouts all of this is circa so around 1500 we have martin luther pin 95 theses on the church door in wittenberg and it changes the course of church history and human history of the 1500s, we begin to see the reformation of the church. It starts an enlightenment in philosophy, and the enlightenment in philosophy becomes an explosion of science. So the modern world is from around 1500, and we can say to about 2000, and we can talk about that date later, but we're just talking about really big chunks of time at this point, like we've already said. This is power and knowledge and certainty is in the hands of the scientist and the logician. So in the ancient world, glory was to God or the gods, depending on where you were. In the medieval world, glory was to the king or to the pope. And in the modern world, glory goes to reason. Science and technology are the central themes of what makes the world modern. As it was in the Big Bang, is now, and will be till the heat death of the universe. Right, that's the way that people talk about this idea of what the modern world is about. It's about science, it's about reason, and that's what's going on. So having these ideas that there are these big spans of time that can be defined in this way, we want to say specifically that things moved us to this point, that there's a reason why there was an ancient world and why it changed. There's a medieval world and why it changed. And there's a modern world and why it is changing. Does that make sense? Kind of having this history in our heads? Yeah. Let me ask you a clarifying question. And Absolutely. Just, just bounce an idea off you. When I think of postmodernism, which you haven't gotten to yet, I think of the individual experience. When I think of modernism, I think of reason as the ascendant arbiter, if, if you will. When I think of the medieval world, it's authority, uh, specifically the authority of the church or the authority of the landowner or the king or whatever. Everyone has to swear oaths. And then in the ancient world, I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you see as the, the primary principle sort of governing the, the pre-modern era? The divine. The divine, yeah. Yeah. The people, the, people related to God and gods um, was really primary. Yeah. The priest, right? The priest class, the caste, whatever, whichever culture you look at in the ancient world of 2500 BC to 580 in the Mediterranean area, anytime you see that there's a powerful class that connects the people to the gods. And we see this much later on, but in Aztec culture, the priests were extremely powerful because 
they believe that the priests doing the sacrifices allowed the sun to rise, right? So this idea that there's a connection to the divine and it shapes the reality, it shapes the world. There is, it's not that there is a supernatural world out there and the natural world here. The supernatural and the natural overlap and that the will of the gods or the will of God is seen right underneath all the stuff that's in the natural world. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I think you're right, talking about how authority is placed in the divine and in the agents of the divine, and then it goes to kings and to the pope and the allegiances you have there. The modern world, I would say you're right. You're, you're, you're right when you're saying that it's about reason and how that reason is universalizing. I, I think that there's an element that the individual in modernism is sovereign. That's a part. That's that is an element of individualism. It's a big shift. Yeah. It's a huge shift. Absolutely. That mm-hmm. the in, it, not that we become communal. Is that, that that the individual is an atomistic entity in the world. That there's this individual that goes through life, and the idea of we say American entrepreneurialism, pull yourself up by your bootstrap. That is a very modern notion. The idea that a person can pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and change the world is not something that would have happened in ages past. It was more what you were born into. Absolutely. I mean, we think Mm -hmm. about the ancient world. Aristotle believed that there were three kinds of soul, copper, silver, and gold. So a soul that was that was less valuable was going to be born a slave. And that was your determined place. We see that over and over again. The the king was there by divine right of birth. So having an individual that can move in society, it's got its good things and it's got its bad things. So, but that's a very modern notion. And and you're now in postmodernism, the authority we'll get to in a second, talking about that, I think it's good to say is it's self-interpreted. How you want to define yourself is what helps you move forward in the world and what gives you authority, value, power yeah. is your self-identification. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the elements of modernism, because I think that's going to help us see what's going on in the modern world. And in the modern world, there are what I've called in the past the twin gods, the twin gods of science and technology. These two bits, science and tech, that that is what faith was grounded in. Faith was grounded in science and reason. And in the modern world, we were going to reach utopia. The idea uh, for the late 1800s into the early 1900s was that we will reach utopia. We will reach perfection as long as we keep seeking science and reason and technology. And as we keep growing, which is why in the early 1900s, you see these worlds of tomorrow and this all this stuff about the future where there will be no more war or want and everything will be great. So seek ye first this sure knowledge that science and technology provide and all these things, peace, safety, power, and wealth will be added to you as well. That's mm. a big element of modernism. Yeah, that's their gospel message. Once we have discovered the sort of mechanized nature of reality, whether gravity, electromagnetism, or a little later on, nuclear forces, that then we can harness the true nature of reality and bend it to human civilization's will and create 
a perfect world. And there's a little, there's a lot of naivete in this approach, which is kind of obvious to those of us who live on the other side of the 20th century. But I think you're yeah. right, going into the 20th, it was just like, look, we got this, we're going to science this situation until we we create a new political system, a new way of growing food, a new way of education, everything. And we're going to extend our life span generation by generation. And it's going to be a steady upward climb. And instead, we got World and War One, World War Two, Stalin, yeah. the Nazis. You're, I mean, you're talking. Yeah, that, 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 all, all that stuff is what will help us talk about why postmodernism exists. But I mean, even in the 1960s sci-fi of America, you still get a little bit of utopianism, right? So it takes some time for it to hit us, but there's reason for that. So absolutely right. It's very different, the world that was going in, like you said, going into the 20th rather than coming out of it. And in that time, in modernism, all knowledge is certain. Um, If we turn our science and technology to any question, we can find ultimate knowledge and truth that there is a it was assumed the part of the worldview is that there is a real world out there and it behaves by logical principles. And the reason why we started with that understanding, especially notice that we're talking about time that really starts in the 1500s because Christians said that was the case. Christians came along and said, there must be a knowledge to the universe. Uh, there must be lo- uh, a logos behind it, a logic behind it all. And as we kept diving in, people started saying, well, we, we're going to lose the idea of a logos, of a reason, of a plan behind the universe, but we're going to keep the certainty of our knowledge. And so the piercing light of science and technology can go to any question. And so it, it explains where the universe came from. It explains where humans came from and in in this understanding and this uh, modernistic understanding of the world. We are stardust, right? The universe exploded into being, and billions of years later, we exist on this ball flying through space because some things started living in some primordial soup, right? And all of this is certain knowledge and true knowledge, at least as true as we can find. And if we find something else that overturns it, then that's the certain and true knowledge for the time. So that's a that's another element. This, these twin gods of science and tech will not fell us. That's a big point that they want to make. Uh huh. And what about morality in this uh, modernist system? Absolutely. Because of reason, because of logic, there is one moral standard that we can deduce. The church tried to, to use this as well. We talk about the church coming along and saying that morality was logical, and it happened to align with what the church was saying. So this is the idea that we can, with our big brains figure out what is the right thing to do in any situation. And philosophy, moral and ethical philosophy dominated at this time. People are moving away in the 1500s even, looking to, and especially 1900s and onward, people are moving away from Christianity and the church to tell them what is good and true and right, and they're trying to find it in the world, in philosophy. So there is, there's still objective truth out there and even objective moral truth in the world, but are with by reason and by thinking we can find it. And this truth that we find, whether it is scientific truth about the universe or whether it's moral truth, it's all absolute. There is one set of facts about the world, and if we look, we can find the, this truth through reason and science. It's an extremely important point about modernism that has to be understood, that truth is absolute. There is 
when you're looking at one fact, when everyone looks at one fact, we all should see the same thing. And if you see something differently, looking at a fact, looking at the science and the data in front of us, then if I see one thing and you see something else, then one of us is wrong. And right. whoever has the better explanation for why they see something different wins out in the end. But but that's that's an important point that there's no there aren't two ways to look at one piece of data and then of course at collections of data and then beyond that right so yeah. and we talked about this a bit earlier but another element of modernism is the value of individualism the individual being sovereign the individual can find truth in the world Descartes Rene Descartes believed that the only thing that he couldn't doubt is the fact that he himself existed. We've all heard the phrase, I think, therefore I am. What he was trying to do is doubt everything in the world. It sounds, sounds like a crazy proposition, but he said, I think, I know that I exist. There is an I that is me, and I exist, and I think, therefore, I must exist. Mm -hmm. And so that is an element that really began to spread out from Descartes, where there is, we call it the Cartesian I, that we all Somewhere deep within us, there is a, for me, there's a Jake Ballard. And this Jake Ballard individual, whatever it is, has value, has worth. And so I go out and pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I go out and can vote and change the world through democracy. I go out and uh, control the areas of my influence. That's a, that's a point of modernism. We talked about this before, but it's the idea of, ancient tribalism or the medieval kingdom are very different than the modern democracy. Yeah, the, I think the medieval focus was was that people's role was assigned by the village mm -hmm. and assigned by the family. And I think women in particular were very limited in what kinds of lives they could live apart from childbearing and taking care of the home that uh, you know, options for them were very, very limited. Whereas in modernism, you start getting this mindset that says, no, there we can break through this, and that's where you have later on in the um, modernist period, you have the suffragette movement and a lot of the the women's rights, and uh, you know, for men too, the idea that uh, you can be anything you want to be. You know, that's right. that's a modernist idea. That, you know, if you work hard enough and you sacrifice and you study, then you could be an astronaut for NASA. You don't really hear that anymore. But that was something that was said very commonly 20, 30, 40 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, that, you know, if you want to be the president, you could be the president of the United States. You just have to work hard and everything else. And uh, I think enough people got disillusioned. <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, that, absolutely. Uh, that, that has uh, somewhat fallen to the wayside, but it's, it's characteristic of this modernist ideal that says the individual is really important. You have human rights because you're an individual. All individuals are, are important, whereas the medieval approach was, no, you're you're what's what's valuable is how you contribute to our village you're the smith so like if you didn't do the smithing the blacksmithing then we wouldn't have horses for our shoes and our village would suffer so it's much more of a communal mindset than today where it's like well if you're not paying me enough to to make this widget i'm going to another company right or exactly. i'll just get into a whole another business apart from this so mm -hmm. uh, this really is uh, a bygone but important period of, of Western civilization and human development. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, What else about modernism should we cover here? Yeah, one last thing I was thinking of, and this is that thinking, learning, and beliefs should be determined systematically and logically. And that sounds like a really good idea. And that's uh, because in some cases it is. If you have been to a Christian bookstore or been on a Christian website where they're selling books, how many times have you seen a systematic theology or heard of a class taught on systematic theology? Mm -hmm. It's because that is modernism being in the church. It's not, there's a, there's a couple different ways to go about making theology, doing it systematically of taking all the data and making sure we have it all in a row and defining all of our terms and doing it really logically and making sure that there's no loose ends or no threads. That's a very modern notion. Other times it was, it was the oral tradition would determine it. So there was times when theology was being made by people sitting around talking about what is the what how do we take this narrative and bring it into our lives and that's an important point to have how we think and learn and believe in the postmodern world is going to be different how we theologize and how we evangelize will, will have to be different but in modernism it was very when we say systematic and logically there were propositions always made if you believe mm-hmm. a and b therefore c it was always reason and logic, and you could make your beliefs into very bite-sized, understandable things. And yeah. so we'll see how that changes in postmodernism. And so I do think it's important to now switch and talk about the history of postmodernism to say, how did we get into a world where modernism falls away and something else rises in ascendancy? Just before you do that, uh, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Wayne Grudem just came out with a new systematic theology textbook uh just like last week oh really uh, which I, I think is uh pretty interesting and it it, it helps us to make a, a i think an important point at this juncture which is that you can have people living today who operate from any one of these worldviews absolutely they're, they're all mixed up together in the society and some people are hardcore postmodernists and some are softer and some are mixing things together, you know, so you have plenty of people that are still operating from that modernist mindset, even today, and that are, in some cases, even doing quite well, as far as, you know, having a following and getting things done. I'm going to show my age, but I am a millennial. I am not quite 30. And yet I was raised and grew up as a someone raised in a modern mindset. My mindset was modern. All these things to go, the, some of the deepest parts in me go, yeah, that makes sense, right? So uh, where, whereas there are people who are a g- couple generations older than me who would say all oh, that's garbage and they are very, like you said, hardline postmodern. So it's not, it, it's that we're in a world where this is currently shifting still. So we're not, it's not that everyone is one way, but it is that there are people out there where this is, where all of those statements that we said of all these elements, they're not seeing any one of them in their own lives or in the lives of the people with whom they share their worldview. All right, let's so let's get into postmodernism. What uh, absolutely? What do you want to say about the history? So the question is, when is postmodernism happening? There's a couple writers who will say it was around 2000 that we can see it. The the, the one who helped me come up with the idea of the ancient, medieval, and modern says around 2000 is when it really starts to affect the culture. Um, It was around before this in multiple books, describing it long before 2000. 
that's that's an example of saying it's getting out of academia and seeping into culture around that time. But I think we could go back even farther and point to the fall of the Berlin Wall as some people who say that that's the last grasp gasp of modernity. The coming together of Eastern and Western Germany and Eastern and Western Berlin closed the chapter on, on the history of modernism. Um, some people who use this date support the ideas of postmodernism as they see the fall of the wall as the coming down of divisions, the reunification of a world that was torn apart during the Cold War. But I think you could go back even farther and say that maybe it began in the 1960s when we point to Woodstock as a time of great upheaval and cultural change. Obviously, free sex, free love, drugs, the, a world that changes during the sexual revolution is going to have a lot of effects. And more of those who are resisting postmodernism use this date. Those who experienced Woodstocks and the times around it, they were experiencing the world through psychedelic lenses. And those who were witnessing Woodstock were kind of shocked, realizing its long-term implications. And I say Woodstock as the example of the 1960s free love culture, right? But there, mm -hmm. I think the earliest possible date is the one that I have fallen to, I, I think makes the most sense to me. For Europeans, when postmodernism begins is during World War I and then especially after World War II. So be between the, the time of World War I and the end of World War II, we see the culture begin to shift. The dropping of the atomic bomb shook the world to its core. We had the war to end all wars and then the war after that. Right, so we talk about this uh -huh. early, early 1900s, this early, I guess, really late 1800s, early 1900s. The 1900 World Fair is like this big moment of look, all these things that are going to come forward for us, and then millions are dead in the trenches in continental Europe, and World War II happens, and millions, millions more. So that is when the world began to shift. Whatever the trend in Europe is, it didn't happen in America at this time, but whatever the trend in Europe is, it takes time to reach to America. And so we see this with the secularization of Europe and then America, it starts in Europe and then it hits the coastal cities, it spreads out and it then goes into the more rural parts of America. Very often trends happen like this. Also, the horrors are farther away for Americans and the Americans are the ones who drop the bomb. So when you think about atomic power, and we think about the cultures that develop something, what do we get when, when Japan creates things made by atomic power, they create Godzilla, a monster that destroys cities. And when we have atomic power, we create superheroes like Spider-Man and the Hulk. So we see that the cultures, <laughs> the, and I, I think that's, it, it's, it's interesting, but it's very real that the value of nuclear power for the Japanese they get destroyed by it and we become heroic saviors by it. And I think that's mm -hmm. really powerful. And so I think that this is when it begins because the people who begin to write about postmodernism are writing in the 1960s in Europe, in France. And so there's a couple different writers who begin to express these ideas, express ideas of that, that modernism is dying or is dead and we should look to what is beyond it. So postmodernism is a term that just means whatever happens after modernism. So it's a very loose, free-flowing term. One of the key elements is that it's a loss of faith in science and technology. We drop the bomb. Utopia will never happen. 
And that's an important element of postmodernism. They said, we can't, the, the sort of nihilistic tendencies get codified into a belief system. This idea that we are going to, that this is the way the world is going to be, that we're never going to see perfection. These twin gods are shown to be false idols. Right. The gods of science, the gods and, of technology science and technology are not going to save us. Um, and modernism was saying, oh, you primitive medieval people and your oaths to and um, faithfulness to the church and the priests and to God, that's not going to save you. Reason is going to save us. And technology and science is going to save us. And then postmodernism saying, no, that didn't work. We tried that. We had the bloodiest century on record. You know, we got really good at killing each other. We made flying machines and we made bombs that could destroy an entire city. And then we actually used these things against each other to kill each other. And even when the dust settled after the war to end all wars, we had to have another war. And then after that war, Vietnam happened, and, and nobody mm-hmm. even knew what was going on there. It's like, what's yeah. the point of this war? And you, you lose faith in the, the, the idea that the government actually has a plan and knows what it's doing and can prove that their way of running things is the right way of running things. A lot of that went down in the 60s with you know race and, and everything else where there was just an erosion of confidence in the powers that be knowing how to chart the course to prosperity and to the to the utopia that we're all expecting what about truth in in postmodernism it seems like yes, that's out the window it is uh so truth becomes relative truth is not a again modernism says truth is the grand idea there is truth out there in the world and if we work hard enough and look hard enough and use our reason and our science and our technology we will find it but truth is found according to postmodernism in the individual or and in their community what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me I can't so we talked earlier about looking at the same datum right this the same thing we're looking at the data we have to come to the same conclusions because there's only one way to see it. But what postmodernism, sa- postmodernism says is that, no, if I see one thing and you see something else, then both could be correct. Both are correct in many cases. I can't tell you what you believe is wrong, and you can't tell me what I believe is wrong because it's my truth, and I express mm-hmm. my truth my way. And so, of course – we always do tell each other that what they believe is wrong. Even if even if people are fully hardcore postmodernists, they can say what you're doing is wrong, but the fundamental assumption is that you can't. If they were, I, I didn't say they were consistent, but I said uh, in, in that case, there, there may be times when that particular idea can be a little self-defeating. But this idea that people see truth in different ways, it, it really comes from the work of... Derrida is an author, and he believes mm-hmm. what he says in the 1960s is that the world is a text. And so what that means is not that everything is written or everything's an idea, but that we always have to interpret everything that comes to us. And how I interpret the world can be different than how you interpret the world because of our worldview. And we can't, so we have to deconstruct our interpretation, and then we live in this 
deconstructed world and where we where we are always trying to get down to the root and bottom of any interaction with people, any reality that we see out there. It's a very it's very complicated, but the idea is that at the end, there is no such thing as objective absolute truth. Truth is how we interpret the world. And that can be that is going to be different from one person to the next. And this leads us into another element of what, what it means to be postmodern. Jean-Francois Lyotard, another one of the uh, fathers of postmodernism, uh, a Frenchman in the 1960s, wrote that postmodernism is an era or time of incredulity toward meta-narratives, doubting meta-narratives. So what are- You're gonna have to give us a little explanation of what a meta-narrative is. Absolutely, and that's what we're gonna do next. Meta-narratives are narratives that try to make the whole world fit into a box. So when we say narrative, we mean a story. It's a totalizing story. It says everything can be explained through this one idea, through this one way of seeing the world. All, and, and what Leotard was saying is that people are, people reject that. They reject the, the notion they have, they disbelieve in that being a possibility. He says that all narratives are based on what a specific community tries to say about itself, not about what someone else says about it or what uh, it says about other things, but what a community says about itself. There is no place to stand outside culture from which we can truly judge something as real or true. That would be, of course, I'm saying a lot of things as a modernist or as a postmodernist. He would say, we can't stand outside culture to see what's true. All we can do, we are always and forever embedded in culture and in language. We have to interpret our own world through the narratives that we tell about ourselves. The world is a text, like we said, we have to interpret it. But because there is no grand narrative truth becomes relative, right? This idea that, that so, so they're back and forth interconnected those two. What this comes to is not only is this affecting, we may be going, oh, well, what does that say about the church? What does it say about Christianity? Because Christianity is a meta narrative in some senses. Mm-hmm. The idea that we, the fact that we try to say everything comes up through the belief that there is a creation and a fall and redemption that the Messiah is coming and everything will be judged under him. That is a meta-narrative. What this is really a reaction against is not the church. It wasn't on his mind, but on science. Science said, apart from any community, we can have all these truths that have been built up and we can explain everything through science. And he says, that is what most people are against. Science isn't the arbiter of all truth like like it used to be. Of course, it does affect churches, but it's not that's not the main concern that Leotard was writing about. So what we're saying then is that the individual really is the one who decides, based on their subjective experience of the world, what is good, what is true, what is the goal. And you really have a breakdown of solidarity in a civilization Whereas in the old days, there was much more of a mindset that said, hey, this is the best for all of us. To a degree, I want to be clear, um, it's the individual as embedded in a community. So it's not an atomistic individual of the modern world, the 1900s, that can say, I'm going to do my own thing and I can, an island kind of thing. The narrative that shapes us is what I interpret about the world, but also what the community that I've chosen to be a part of says about the world. 
So this is the reason why we see the rise of online communities, the reason why we see a rise of people talking about politics and treating mm -hmm. politics as their really their social group and their social right. movement. It's I would because just call it tribalism. It is would tribalism. Be, uh, yes. Would you agree that would with be, that term? Yes, that would be the that would be the right term to say. It's not necessarily imposing upon others, but saying we're going to redeem for ourselves the experience that we've had, and we're going to interpret the world in this way, and we don't necessarily care if you don't like it. Uh, one of the things that you could do is taking the pride movement in America and mm -hmm. using it to describe that when people say, what, did, what does it mean to be gay in the United States? They've taken the taken their experiences and they tell the story and people connect to the pride movement as what is that i am part of the lgbt community that word is really big because it's 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 actually showing a value and a, a part of their postmodern worldview is that community is essential and so they say i'm not just a, a gay person living life in the midst of a sea of other humanity i am a member of a tribe i'm a, i'm a member of a community so that's not, it doesn't necessarily have to become, I will impose my power upon another. I think it can, and especially in politics, it does. That can come out in other ways. The community helps us interpret the world. So when we have people looking at events like, let's say we, we take the, a case that was really powerful and moving for many people, what happened to George Floyd? Why do some people say, it doesn't matter, it's not police brutality, it's perfectly fine. And why do some people say this is the clearest example of police brutality and this man was murdered in the streets and we need to try the cops and have them convicted or else there will be judgment upon the city, right? Like there's a couple different ways of interpreting that. The way people are interpreting it is not just their own logic and reason, but they're, the community that they're a part of. So if someone finds themselves as part of a group that says Black Lives Matter, or a group that says blue lives matter, or a group that says all lives matter, what your community is saying, that's a narrative that's going to shape the way you see the event. And postmodernism just says, that's the way it is. It's just recognizing that we, we're not all coming at this with logic and reason. We're all coming at it with different narratives that are, so, so Black Lives Matter says there is a wave of cops killing unarmed black men without any punishment. That's the narrative they say. And then Blue Lives Matter says, no, that narrative is wrong and it's making cops get killed in record numbers that we've never seen before. Then All Lives Matter says, let's not fight, let's not fight, please stop fighting, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody's got their own narrative about what, how, do we, how do we interpret these events. But what makes it so hard is because we've rejected meta-narratives, and that means science and religion, and because truth is relative, there are no longer moral absolutes in the postmodern world. There are only preferences. If there's no truth in the world, how could morality, determined by people and communities, be objectively true? There are things that people are necessarily universally against, it seems, but they cannot be morally absolute if there is no such thing as absolute truth. So while we may look at murder in cold blood, and every, we say everyone's against it, there's no way to say it's objectively wrong. It's done because that's what's good for society rather than that's what is true about the world or given by God. On the upside, like we said, the community becomes of greater value. We live in a world that is in dire need of community. 
and so people are finding communities. Yeah, but it's a it's a monolithic community, right? It's not a diverse community. What do you mean by monolithic and diverse? Well, what I mean is it's tribal, you know, so like these are people that agree with me. That's my community. Yes. Oh, absolutely. When yeah. I say communities of value, I don't mean the United States as a community, mm -hmm. like a large, broad group. It's people that I can attach myself to. The internet allowed us to find exactly the people that we want to be like, and we can live in an echo chamber of our own making, right? right. So that's how you can find people who believe in the flat earth. And uh -huh. they live in flat earth communities and they talk about how great <laughs> it is to not live on a globe and how there are these globe heads out there, even though we've known for centuries what the world looks like from space because we have people up there. But people say, oh, no. And there are people who will say, no, no. In Christian communities who say, no, the world has to be flat because that's what the Bible says. But again, this is all saying who's got the truth? And it's, it's a, a really a nihilistic view, view of truth, that truth is relative and we can make it whatever we want to be, and science is no longer good. And so we can't, can we say what, what is true about the way the world is shaped? Is the world a globe? Is it a flat? Is it a – someone was saying the other day, is it a pyramid? Uh, you know, these crazy ideas, but they're all coming from a place of they found a community. The community is making its own narratives about the world. And you're right. Inside the community, they're not diverse. They're, there's no diversity of ideas. There's Sometimes it's lacking diversity because it says we don't want any people from another group to come in. We want to close yeah. ourselves off. Well, where this, where this really hits home for me in the church is that I've got old people. I've got young people. I've got middle-aged people. I've got black and white. I've got uh, rich and poor I've got blue collar and white collar. I've got Republicans and Democrats. And boy, is it hard to hold it together. Yeah. My goodness. Everybody wants to, you know, and what, what do they want us to do as pastors? They want us to lend support to their, their particular interest group. They want us to get up there and blow the other side out of the water. And then, yeah, now I'm going to really amen in the sermon. That's really a, a challenging time for, for me where it's like, all right, what I want and what I see, you know, a lot of my motivation for uh, what I do and how I think about ethics is proleptic. I, I sort of look at how God plans to heal the world in the age to come and find ways to enact and embody that today. And yeah. so I want to have my community of faith be a reflection of what's ultimately going to be in the kingdom, where in Revelation 5.9, it says people from every tribe, nation, and language are going to be there. Mm -hmm. So I want to have a diverse community of people that are recognizing the priority of their gospel-centered faith as more than their political views or their hobby or their you know weird niche thing that you know 1% of the population even has ever heard of. Absolutely. Um, and that's a real challenge. To get to that point, we have to get to seeing that the biblical worldview has to take precedence over whatever worldview we may have inherited. Mm -hmm. That's really the key issue there. Let's take, for example, this idea versus the sovereign individual and the value of the individual versus being part of a community that gives us our narrative. And talking about modernism and postmodernism, in some cases, each one has its place in the ancient biblical worldview 
the the Bible says that Christ came so that he may call those who will to whom whom he will save, right? That he will draw all the people unto him that he will save. So he calls individuals out. He the sheep know him by name. He knows the sheep by name. So there's a value placed on the individual. In an ancient world, the individual was loved by God and was the Messiah died for that person. But he never called us to love him solo. He called us to love him in community, a community that tells its story, that interprets its world in a specific way. That is very postmodern. The idea that we're saying we are a community and we understand that we have our own bias, we have our own worldview, and we interpret the world in this way. We understand that. That That's an important thing to see, that that's a postmodern understanding as well as a modern one kind of found in scripture. That doesn't mean everything's going to work that way. You can't find a place in scripture where truth is relative, for example. Mm-hmm. Truth, right. there is, a, when God says something to be some way, we understand that that's the truth of the matter. We think, okay, well, truth is relative, so that means God must be absolutist in in, the, in a modern sense. But God doesn't say that everything that he knows that is true will be found through science. Part of the thing that we have to understand is that it's not science and reason that finds the truth about the world. Part of what makes us Christians is that we believe God gave revelation, a revelation that cannot be deduced through scientific inquiry. Paul says we can see reflections and nature of the glory of God, but we're not going to figure out that God sent Jesus of Nazareth to die on the cross for our sins by looking at how atoms and protons and quarks work. Knowledge of God is not found primarily in science and reason and logic like the modernists say, but instead it is found in revelation. So when we look back through these through these events and what makes up modernism, we see some things that the biblical worldview says is good to, to hold on to, to, to cling to, but some things that we should be okay with giving up. The idea that we should hold on to every part of modernism and say, no, stop, postmodernism, get out of here, isn't necessarily the case. And I don't know if we even can. One of my professors, when we were talking about this really early on, first time I ever heard of postmodernism, said that trying to get postmodernism to stop is like standing on the shore, yelling at a tidal wave, no, stop, turn back. That's not how this is going to work. The tidal wave's already coming in. The world is already beginning to change. We have to understand how we ride the wave. Yeah, I would even say the tidal wave has already come in. It's just some of us are cloistered on the tops of mountains and are pretending like it's not here. I mean, it's here. It's here in the music. It's here in the arts. It's here in the academy. It's been in the academy forever. It's It's been been in in the the academy since the. It's been in the academy since the sixties, and maybe the eighties at the latest in the American Academy. But it's really producing adherence now in twenty twenty. I mean, that's we're we're forty years into it now. You know now, right? So we do need to understand this, and we do need to recognize not just the bad. Uh, I think that's a tendency of of many of us as Christians. We we say, oh, modernism, you know, was bad because it privileged reason over revelation. Okay, well, that's that's true. But there's a lot of good, too. There's a lot of good in modernism. And the same thing with postmodernism. Postmodernism teaches relative truth. Okay, that's bad when it comes to certain absolutes that we find in Scripture, uh, like that God exists, 
you know, that's not my truth or your truth. That is just uh, an absolute reality. But then it is good in the sense that it it takes experience seriously. It takes oh, absolutely. Uh, victims of injustice seriously. And these are biblical themes we see all throughout the prophets. Um, absolutely. And so, you know, there's really elements of either one and the other ones that came before that are validated in Scripture. We need to recognize the good as well as the bad. Absolutely. And I think another thing that's important to recognize is in the previous episode, I told my story and it was like, well, why do we talk about that when we're talking about worldview? Well, it's important to recognize that my story has weight. People that are postmodern question meta narratives, but individual and community narratives are of prime importance. It's that that I have a, a, an experience where a group pulled me in gave me love, gave me life, called me to, that, that's a story that speaks to people. Stories speak. Communities that tell their stories, this, this entire community can tell of a time when they rallied around and saved a kid's life. That's an important story to be able to tell, that, that the church has throughout these years, throughout years and years of history, have had moments where grace was given, and, and these, these narratives, they speak truths that mm-hmm. are not propositional. That's right. another thing that we that we have that there are truths that are not able to be put into propositions, and yet they are very true. And narrative structures allow us to do that. And postmodernists aren't worried about having all of our, their narr- their propositional truths checked off in a box systematically and logically. They want to know what does this Jesus? How does he change my life? What is it to experience life through Jesus Christ? And that we can offer. That we can give because we may not be able to answer all the questions. We learn that that there is mystery and beauty inside faith. And yet, so we lean into those moments where there's mystery and beauty and we can't answer everything. We say, we don't have all the answers, but we can be a place where you can experience God. And that makes the church something that nothing else has. Because a lot of people can try to answer all the questions and make it sound all right. But we they can't offer an experience of the living God like Jesus said his church would be able to. Very good. We need to wrap it up here. Share with us a little teaser. Where are we headed in the future here? What are we looking at? uh, How it affects our world today and getting into some of the specific issues that we're facing and looking more at this kind of subject. What do you you think? Give us a little teaser. We're going to talk about uh, how these things, like you said, how they play out across our world today with specific ideas, specific movements, how the culture is changing around us, and what that means when we see all these different shifts in culture, how to address it in a way of cross-cultural ministry, how to address these changes, not just what are they, but, but how do we live as the church in light of them? And then, of course, what comes after postmodernism? Is there, is, are we at the end of all the changes or is there even more to come? And uh, it'll, be, it'll be really interesting for the next couple, next couple weeks. Very good. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this today. If you would like to get in touch with Pastor Jacob Ballard, you can do that at the Timberland Bible Church website, which you can find in the show notes for this episode or at restitutio.org under... Podcast 371, Postmodernism Part 2, where I encourage you to leave your questions, your comments, your criticisms, and your feedback. In fact, we did get a criticism in for our episode last week, number 370, Postmodernism Part 1, where John Bradley wrote in saying, 
We praise God who has helped Jacob during his trials and losing his parents and grandmother in childhood, who has led him into Christian pastoral ministry. My following comments, however, are meant as constructive criticism. He continues, This lecture on postmodernism was a huge disappointment. It was an over-verbose, meandering discourse on the patently obvious. That is, that all people are raised in a particular particular cultural or subcultural environment which initially shapes their values, attitudes, and worldview. End of lecture. I hope that Jacob's future lectures can considerably pick up the pace and begin providing far more factual and practical material on the subject matter of postmodernism. To that, Harlan Kay responded, saying, To be fair, the topic is crazy divisive, and kid gloves is the only approach when speaking to a mass internet audience. I applaud those looking for solutions, but I haven't seen any that work. In my humble opinion, the ultimate issue for Christianity is that what is written in the New Testament is at odds with 21st century Americanism, a mishmash of postmodernism, liberalism, scientism, and various flavors of critical theory. Nothing short of Unitarian Universalism will be sellable to those raised by these government institutions, daycare through university. But I'm a pessimist by nature, so don't listen to me. Uh, so I just wanted to reply a little bit to this. First of all, at Rest Studio, we welcome criticism. We welcome correction. I'm certainly not flawless. I don't think Pastor Ballard is flawless either, having, having met him and spent a little bit of time with him. Uh, he seems like a very humble person. As far as the specifics here go, that we were meandering and verbose, or that ba- Pastor Ballard was, I want to take responsibility for that, <laughs> um, because I think Ballard would be very happy just to lecture. I mean, he is a he is a teacher, both of the Bible and at the college level, he has taught this material. Um, but what I thought would be good would be to do it as a discussion, where I do interject and basically slow down Jake. But I thought that would be good for the purposes of engagement, for keeping people's attention. And it is a trade-off. You know, we do have classes at Rest Studio. And when we do those, it, it can be sometimes rather dense. In this case, we wanted to have it be a little easier to listen to. And so, yeah, we might have been a little verbose and uh, whatnot. But hopefully after this episode, you can see that uh, once I let Ballard off the, the chain a little bit, he is, he's very capable of uh, providing content that really does help us think through this worldview shift that many of us have lived through and that many of us are trying to come to terms with today. So thanks for that. If any of you also want to write in on that, I uh, would love to hear from you. I agree with Harlan as well that Christianity is, by its very nature, offensive to our culture today and it has been offensive in every culture. There are certain aspects that fit in and certain aspects that are offensive. In the pre-modern world, Christianity was incredibly offensive for not believing in the statue gods, for not worshiping and attending the ceremonial parades. We were called atheists for not believing in the statues, and we were called traitorous for not participating in the city parades and eating the meat sacrifice to the idols. In the modernist period, uh, Christianity was heavily criticized for our belief in miracles and the supernatural and divine revelation, these kinds of things. Any kind of mystical experience was out in those days. And now today we are criticized for our ethics. Uh, Suddenly the world thinks that Christianity's traditional sexual ethic as limiting sexual expression to a marriage between a man and a woman, 
this is something that would have been not a big deal in previous eras, and now suddenly is is the big deal. The Christian affirmation of two genders is incredibly offensive today, and and it, and it wasn't in the past. So in every era, Christianity is going to fit in ways and be divisive in other ways, and the question is not how do we change Christianity, how do we make it Unitarian Universalism? You know, I, I don't think that's the way to go at all. I think the question is how do we retain our faith, train our people to hold fast on the contested aspects of our faith, but also have a posture towards new people and towards the culture and towards reaching people that is able to speak the gospel in such a way that makes sense to people and is attractive to people. And that's really what I'm after in this series. So stay tuned for part three next week. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that online at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.